Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome back to this week's episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. I'm your host, Amanda Nally. Today we have Dr. Rolanda Lister, the TIPQC Officer for Health Equity, and Dr. Adele Monteblanco, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Middle Tennessee State University. Dr. Adele shares with us the effects of extreme heat on perinatal health and how we can help our patients counteract those effects to improve health outcomes in Tennessee. Let's get to it. Thank you so much, Dr. Adele, for being with us today on TIPQC's Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby podcast. And I was so eager to have this conversation with you because, as you know, that there's so many challenges that are facing our moms, including the built environment. So when I heard your area of expertise was on climate change, I was very intrigued as to how that intersected with the mission of TIPQC. So why don't we start with you telling our listeners about yourself, what makes you excited about this work, and how you got into it? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to be here. So I'm an assistant professor of sociology at Middle Tennessee State University, and not all of your listeners are probably familiar with my discipline. So if I may briefly, sociology is the scientific study of human behavior. And as is evident with that definition, what we study is quite vast, but we often focus on patterns and conditions that contribute to inequality. And sociology has long contributed to the field of maternal and infant health. My work specifically is at the intersection of medical and environmental sociology, and I've long researched midwives' utility to prepare for and respond to extreme events, and most recently, that focus has been on extreme heat. I I love that you ask what gets me excited about this research because I'm really passionate about the work that I do because healthy outcomes for pregnant people and babies are only possible on a healthy planet. And I will also say that I love my work because I frequently get to collaborate with midwives and doulas who I have long admired. That's fascinating. So often we talk about healthy mom, healthy baby, healthy families, and healthy communities, but the notion of a healthy planet contributing to some of the outcomes that that we are interested in as a maternal fetal medicine doctor myself and many of our stakeholders who are listening would probably want to know how does it intersect? How does the climate affect pregnancy outcomes? And what are some examples on how the climate change affects pregnancy outcomes? Yeah, so let's start really big. Climate change is an environmental emergency and one of the biggest threats to global health. And in fact, even ACOG has made a position statement. So the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists have a position statement 
that recognizes that climate change is an urgent women's health concern and a major public health challenge. So to be direct, climate change is literally altering the planet and with it are crop growth, vector-borne diseases, vector-borne disease rates, I should say, mm-hmm. access to clean water, and of interest to me, extreme weather. So you can imagine with all these concerns, there are potential adverse outcomes to maternal and fetal health. And in large part, because of the disruption to health systems and services that your listeners are providing. So your audience knows already, I'm stating the obvious, that maternal and infant care is time sensitive and specialized, but the climate crisis in particular Mm. is creating interruptions in that access to care and as well as disrupted access to clean water, nutritious food, and even prescriptions in some cases. How so? Can you expound on the the last part? Yeah, so if you think about something as extreme as Hurricane Katrina that completely disrupted parts of this country, people were evacuated out of their neighborhoods and out of their cities and were unable to access the medications that they perhaps left sitting on their counter, Mm -hmm. or in fact, were unable to access the actual pharmacy in their neighborhood Mm -hmm. because when the city told people to evacuate, even medical providers probably evacuated as well to promote their own safety. Just just as an example of how Mm -hmm. access and materials are disrupted during an extreme event. And and Hurricane Katrina, of course, is quite an extreme one. Absolutely. Are there any particular regions in the world and probably closer to home in the United States that are more vulnerable to extreme heat? Yeah. To think about what geographies, what places in the United States are vulnerable I I would say nearly every single community, because we know Mm -hmm. that extreme heat exposure across the United States is already increasingly common. And we know that most areas across the country, including our own state of Tennessee and surrounding states, can actually expect more frequent, more intense, and longer duration of extreme heat events. Interesting. So you had mentioned the example with Hurricane Katrina and how individuals due to having to evacuate their homes in search for safety, how that impacted certain access to services, prescriptions, etc. How does climate change affect other aspects of the social, what we dubbed the the social determinants of health, the the built environment in which someone lives and works. How does the climate intersect with with that? And how does that potentially affect maternal and child health? So I will say that climate change is absolutely a social and environmental determinant of health. Mm -hmm. The first example I think of is rising oceans and extreme events, because those threaten secure housing, which is central to the long-term health of moms, babies, and families. And kind of one of the things we're hinting on in this conversation today is that climate change is a threat multiplier. And so we're gonna see it exacerbate existing social and economic inequities that we're already concerned with in the other social and environmental determinants of health. So it seems like such a, a pretty daunting problem that needs a pretty, I guess, a multi 
layered solution. So where does one begin? Wait, you see me on the end of this still smiling, right? Climate change in and of itself, yes, problem. Yeah. But I, much of my work is on extreme heat and heat stress to a body is absolutely preventable. Mm. And so that's one of the reasons I like working at this piece of climate change because mm -hmm. it's preventable. Yeah, kind of, I guess, the difference between extreme heat and other aspects of climate change. And why is it that you're focused on extreme heat versus the other natural disaster and other elements of, of climate change? So the easy answer as to why I study extreme heat is because I lived in El Paso, Texas for two years. Okay. Um, so, so that was a harsh reality for me, yeah. being born and raised in Portland, Oregon, and never been exposed uh -huh. to those kinds of temperatures, especially for months at a time. How does that differ from other elements of climate change? And where does that fall on the spectrum of, in terms of threat to maternal and child health? Right. Well, I'm not going to give you a hierarchy. Get on something really important, and that is the other reason why there's so many people working in the um, research and everything else in extreme heat. And that's because in most years, extreme heat is responsible for the most weather-related deaths in the U.S. Interesting. And yet, you know, I lived in four different states in my adult life and in so many of the communities that I've lived. We perceive heat to be a public health nuisance and frustrating, mm -hmm. and there's a few months that are especially awful, but we don't take it seriously. Right. And the morbidity is one main reason we should take it seriously, but also because of these maternal health outcomes as well. What maternal health outcomes are directly related to extreme heat? I will remind the audience that I am a sociologist, and I think that really, that importantly frames my the work that I do. But for the past decade or so, we've seen numerous studies mounting evidence across the globe mm. that exposure to high temperatures and importantly, the associated heat stress on the body mm. can threaten pregnancy and fetal health. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's a few different risks that we're concerned with. This exposure and the heat stress can increase the rate of these poor birth outcomes, such as preterm birth, low birth weight, and stillbirth. Okay. You, you've referenced that many of your audience members are providers. And so there's probably a piece of them who, who are asking, I, I want to know the physiology um, around this data. And, and that's an important question. So I'll briefly say that it's very complex the ways a pregnant person's body responds to heat stress, mm -hmm. but that some of the concerns include things like dehydration, reduced uterine blood flow, and the initiation of premature labor, right? These are all things we want to avoid in pregnancy because of the increase of adverse birth outcomes. And how is extreme heat? This might sound really elementary just because I'm just so fascinated with like that being its own entity. But how do you define extreme heat? And um, yeah. I'm often asked that question okay. and it's a good one. And my resistance is in offering you a magic number. Okay. And this is what extreme okay. heat is. I will say that the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, have a definition that I think is helpful for us to use. Mm -hmm. And that is that extreme heat is defined as summertime temperatures that are much hotter 
or humid than average. And because some places are hotter than others, this depends on what's considered average for a particular location mm -hmm. at that time of year. Okay. So further complicating this is humid and muggy conditions can of course make it seem hotter than it really is. And all of us living in Tennessee are quite familiar with that. But what I hope in using that definition showcases is that it's impossible for us to quantify a magic number that mm -hmm. is extreme heat. And we have to look at different cities, even across Tennessee. And, and furthermore, especially as a sociologist, I will say that if we specify a number, it fails to consider two important things. And that is who is more likely to be exposed. Mm -hmm. And we're often concerned with populations like outdoor workers and athletes. Mm -hmm. And secondly, whose bodies struggle to maintain a comfortable temperature of interest to this audience is infants, perhaps. And then there's other populations like the elderly. And so at this time, I cannot offer you a magic number, but I think the subjectivity of bodies. The other piece that I'll mention too is that as someone who moved repeatedly, mm -hmm. my acclimation to temperatures mm -hmm. changes. And so like if we had a magic number of, let's say, 100 degrees in Tennessee, mm -hmm. that would be really problematic because how many people in Nashville, for example, are experiencing 100 degree weather on a particular day? Well, if they have air conditioning or if they're in the shade, right. they're not experiencing right. 100 degree weather. Right. And what if they're traveling from Mexico or yeah. Maine? That matters for how well prepared their body is mm -hmm. to... To respond to those extreme heat temperatures. And, and so that's why it's very complex. Interesting. Okay. So it's really, um, it has just as much to do with a person's ability to, I guess, respond to extreme changes, you know, like kind of like the the rate of change as opposed to one particular, one set number. That's an important factor that helps us address vulnerability. Yes, absolutely. So you've done some advocacy work with other organizations. I believe the March of Dimes, and they've been so instrumental in tackling so many maternal and child health issues. How did they become interested in climate change and, and how does that intersect with, with their mission? Yeah, so I've long admired the mission of March of Dimes, and I'm proud to be a member of the March of Dimes newly created environmental justice work group. Mm -hmm. And that work group is part of a larger mom and baby action network. Mm -hmm. In our work group, we learn from and collaborate with so many members in, that represent moms and activists and clinicians and scholars. And we aim collectively to improve our understanding of maternal and infant environmental health and identify solutions. And we are just so focused on ensuring that pregnant people and their babies can live free of environmental threats. And we are conceptualizing environmental threats very, very broadly. Much of our conversation today is on climate change, but within that environmental justice work group, we're also concerned about issues such as air pollution or contaminants in baby food. You had mentioned that, you know, if it's 100 degrees outside, but someone has air conditioning, then it's not necessarily, you know, like they're not seeing those 
extreme temperatures. So what would be the justification on focusing, you know, I wouldn't say solely on the climate, but like spending a lot of energy into that, which is seems like more of a global, you know, a global priority, as opposed to making sure that on a local level that women and families can counteract extreme heat by making sure they have appropriate housing and air conditioning and and that kind of thing, like to counteract that, it seems like sometimes inevitable effects of climate change and and extreme heat. So like, where should we focus our our efforts, I guess, is the, is the larger question. Because climate change exacerbates current inequalities, what you're very thoughtfully asking about is what disparities do we focus on? And actually housing, I think, is a really yeah, important one. I do too. So it, it doesn't feel like a climate change solution, but but it's preventing, it's reducing risk and reducing vulnerability mm-hmm. to invest in, for example, public housing throughout the country. Mm-hmm. And so people have somewhere safe and secure during extreme events and on regular days as well. Right. So, um, you know, for the doctors, nurses, and families that want a safe and healthy pregnancy and outcome, realizing that we face an urgent threat, what can we do from, you know, from a hospital system in order to mitigate the effects of climate change and, and extreme heat for the health of the patients that we take care of? Absolutely. So, so much of my work has been in collaborating and learning from health providers, particularly community birth workers like midwives and doulas. And I know in having this conversation so many times that it's very easy, including for health providers, to throw their hands up and say, this is impossible. Many of the health risks associated with, in this case, extreme heat can absolutely be prevented. And so I do want healthcare providers to take note in ways that they can reduce risk of their patients. So health providers, as has been quite evident during this pandemic, are trusted sources of information. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Every single day, you act as champions and advocates Mm -hmm. for human health. Mm -hmm. And what I'm asking is that you extend that advocacy for the necessity of a sustainable ecosystem. I think that any clinician who offers care to pregnant people or during the postpartum phase should be familiar with climate change as a health concern and become more familiar in communicating these risks to patients. So I I mentioned before that I've done some work in El Paso, Texas with a team of brilliant scholars and leaders and maternal health workers. So If it's appropriate, I will use this opportunity Mm -hmm. to promote some of the heat outreach materials that my colleagues and I created. They are absolutely Mm evidence-based. Many of them have been peer-reviewed, and we piloted them already in El Paso, Texas, Mm -hmm. with midwives and doulas, using them to talk about risks with their patients. Tell us a little bit more about that. Like, what was that? evidence? How did the education process go? And and what did you hope, you know, to accomplish with this initiative? Well, the big thing we hope to reduce risk, mm-hmm. right? To promote health within a geographic region, the Southwest, mm-hmm. which was going to, like much of the country, 
encounter increase in more extreme heat events. And because that's going to happen, we have to prepare the community. And one of the best ways to prepare a community, especially in targeted outreach to a group that's vulnerable, mm -hmm. in this case, pregnant people, mm -hmm. is to use those trusted sources of information. So based on my long work with midwives, that was really easy. Go talk to midwives. Yeah. They know their community. They know the strengths and limitations of their neighbors. And so they were trusted sources of information. I will say even in El Paso, Texas, as is, I think, probably true across the country, we, we just don't take heat very seriously. And then only recently has more and more data actually showcased this important risk to maternal and fetal health outcomes. And so most of the maternal health workers that I was talking with were actually unfamiliar with these health risks. Mm -hmm. Really important, like, yeah, initial starting right. to make sure everyone, more people were familiar with these health outcomes mm -hmm. because as we know, with everyone listening, most of the people listening work every single day tirelessly to promote maternal and infant health. And the health workers that I was working with in El Paso, Texas were no different. And so one, getting this information and two, shifting potential conversation with their patients. And so we did a workshop in a birth center in El Paso, and we invited lactation consultants and counselors, doulas and midwives. And we had a conversation about the risks, about where to access information on heat in your area, and then offered them materials that they could then pilot in their community. So what did you find with, with that <laughs> education? Like, don't leave me hanging, don't leave. <laughs> we found that they are wonderfully brilliant and engaged with their community mm -hmm. and were a wonderful resource to pass information along. Mm -hmm. They were eager to engage in continuing education as most healthcare providers are, and then were happy in the summer months to participate in further conversations with their patients mm -hmm. about reducing risk and to look out for signs and symptoms of heat stress. Mm. Um, so we asked them to do both. And so we provided outreach materials like a rack card and a magnet and thermometers mm. and pamphlets to encourage these conversations and to also leave them in their clinic waiting rooms or to leave them in the bathrooms at the clinic. All of that helped us to promote this conversation in El Paso. Excellent. Are those resources still available? Those resources are freely available on my website, and hopefully y'all can include that in the show notes. They are editable PDFs, mm -hmm. so please adjust them to best serve mm -hmm. your community. Mm -hmm. And they're currently available in English and Spanish. If there are listeners eager to help me translate in other languages, mm -hmm. please reach out because I'm very eager to do so. Now, how have you found the uptake of that information? You mentioned the willingness and eagerness of providers to educate and disseminate. Was there any follow-up with the patients themselves and how they were able to integrate that information in, into their lives? That's a really important limitation to this project is we didn't focus specifically on patients. And so we couldn't find out how it potentially shifted their health and even their practices or even their perception of possible danger. Yeah, I, I could imagine that they probably 
expanded their knowledge and, and probably became a lot more environmentally conscious as a result of their education. So you're bringing up two really important things. The first one is that, as you and your listeners know, pregnancy offers this really important window to change health behaviors. So why not add environmental health too? And then the other piece is this, this conflict that I continue to have, which is, oh my goodness, pregnant people have so much to worry about, so much to navigate during their pregnancy. Mm-hmm. I can't believe I'm adding one more thing for them to worry and consider. So, so I do struggle with that in my work because of course most, no, all moms and all moms yeah. want to promote healthy pregnancies. Yeah. Not all of them are in a position to do so because of larger economic forces, et cetera. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wary about on the one hand, I'm absolutely here to promote the reduction of heat exposure at the individual level, mm-hmm. but that only goes so far. There are right. other important solutions that happen at the city and state and federal level that will promote health as well. How do you get buy-in from all of those entities? It seems like uh, you know public health measures and healthy planning initiatives have their different perspectives on the spectrum. So how do you get buy-in from a diverse group of people who have different opinions about the threat of heat um, to the planet? I think health is actually the best buy-in, that Mm -hmm. all of us want to live long lives with great quality and quantity years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so often instead of talking about it as a climate change issue, I simply talk about it as a heat issue, then suddenly people think, well, you know what, like the summers can get really miserable here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it reduces how much time I get to spend yeah. in my backyard or in the mountains or playing ball with my kids. Right. And so if you can get that buy-in, then, may- then maybe you don't even need to bring up the climate crisis. Right. Excellent. Okay. All right. If you had one thing that you want to leave with our audience that you feel would be the most impactful? Like, you know, what would you say your your message is? Promoting a healthy planet benefits all of us. I guess that's the simple message. And I will say that we have to do something about it, right? And that so much of it is tied to other social justice issues, including maternal health disparities that we see mm-hmm. in our country. And so that's why I'm particularly excited about the Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act. It is transformational. Tell us about that, the Momnibus Act. So it was introduced by Congresswoman Lauren Underwood and others, Mm -hmm. and it's aimed to address the U.S. maternal health crisis through a set Mm -hmm. of 12 different bills. And I'm particularly thrilled that one of the bills is called Protecting Moms and Babies Against Climate Change. So I'd encourage your listeners to become more familiar with these bills. And of course, I'm most excited about the climate change one because we see investments in community programming that will mitigate air pollution and extreme weather. And a piece that we haven't talked about, uh, funds to prepare the healthcare workforce for the ways climate change will affect their patient care. So thinking about like changing at least a little bit the curriculum in medical school would be a huge shift in how healthcare practitioners start thinking about climate change and environmental and planetary health, and then how they're talking about it with their patient population. 
Interesting. Okay. So Dr. Dell, as you know, in the state of Tennessee, we are always considering all of our moms from all different types of areas, both rural and urban. How, how does the climate and heat stress, are there differences depending on where patients reside? Are there different complications that can be associated with that? Absolutely. So what you're hinting at is how different heat temperatures can be and feel across urban, suburban, and rural environments. And so the built environment is really important for us to understand because of its ties to exposure to heat and thus, of course, the health outcomes. So I will emphasize that how we create our cities matter. The way that we use our land can magnify the impacts of climate change. And so one of the best examples of that is the urban heat island effect. Many of your listeners probably live in big cities across Tennessee. And so they're probably quite constantly reminded that that urban interior temperature is generally higher compared to those in suburban or rural areas. And that's the urban heat island effect. Not to oversimplify it, but I'll just note that the city surfaces and materials like metal and concrete hold heat. And so this matters because it shapes our exposure to high temperatures as we commute to work, go for a jog, or even play on the playground. And so, yes, in fact, we do see the exposure look very, very different across urban, suburban, and rural environments. So in addition to kind of addressing the global crisis, it sounds like there might be more individualized solutions depending on where someone is or kind of a rising tide helps all ships to rise. What's, what's kind of the, I guess, what's the, what's the thought behind that? As a sociologist, I will say I struggle with giving individual level suggestions. Um, because on the one hand, I absolutely want to reduce individual risk and I want us each to contribute less greenhouse gas emissions. So perhaps your listeners are assuming that I'm going to tell them to drive less or plant trees around their home or create a disaster preparedness kit, right? All these things matter, but they're individual level decisions that will reduce risk, but are constrained by someone's economic situation and geography, et cetera. I would like to see counties, states, and the federal level lead with reducing greenhouse gas emissions by investing in new transportation systems. We need to think about changes to our food system, et cetera. These are big things. And and that's why instead of focusing on those really important solutions, and, and I do think there's a role for them, when we look at maternal health inequities, I'm actually much more focused on, as we mentioned before, investing in things like affordable housing, but also investing in parental leave and uh, subsidized childcare and expanded Medicaid, because all of those things are going to promote healthy families that are more resilient to the extreme events that are coming our way. So um, Earth Day is coming up. (laughs) And in recognition of, of Earth Day, what kind of mobilizing call to action do you want? <laughs> I'm so academic. Uh, These questions are really, like, I, I don't tell people what to do. <laughs> I am. But people are going to want to know what they can do. Like, we are definitely, you know, 
wanting to to implement things because we're all wanting to improve maternal health. So that's like always the question is like, well, what can I do right here, right now in order to make a difference? So what would you say? I think many of your listeners are in positions of power in a clinic or in a hospital setting or in a community in which they are a trusted source of information. And so I would encourage them to change the conversation and that because they have a listening ear for someone interested in maternal health, whether that's a pregnant person or their boss, talk about maternal health as shaped by environmental health. I hope in our conversation, we've given you a few talking points. Many of the local and national professional organizations that you're a part of, I, I mentioned ACOG just as one, have written about and lead on efforts of climate change. And so read their position statements, follow them on social media, do days on the hill with them and promote change within your community. I just I can't emphasize enough that healthcare providers are trusted sources of information. People look to you to talk to them about their health. That can include the way the climate crisis is shaping individual health. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that was that was excellent and I will definitely leave you with the last word. I appreciate your expertise and and your time here today. I'm thrilled to be having these conversations. It is such a gift to share my time this way and to learn from all of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.